Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Denfos Way. My name is Jack Rouse. I'll be your host today. I'm a former Navy journalist and a current training instructor here at the Defense Information School. Joining me today is Bob Britton from West Virginia University. He's a doctor and a teaching associate professor at the Reed College of Media at West Virginia University. He teaches classes specifically focused on media and information literacy and is a strong advocate for incorporating these concepts in all courses that involve mass media communication. Dr. Britton, thanks for joining us. No problem. Glad to be here. Um, I just listened to your conversation um, during the social media forum, which is why you're joining us here today, and I found it uh, endlessly fascinating. So for uh, anyone who's listening who obviously wasn't part of the social media forum, we're going to be discussing information literacy and media literacy with you, which I think is uh, something of extreme value to both our students and our graduates as we sort of exist in this world of social media and uh, misinformation. So the first thing I would ask you is, uh, can you give us an idea of what media and information literacy actually means? Uh, sure. Yeah. So media literacy, how we approach it is the ability to read, which seems a little basic, but to read and access and um, produce information in a media environment. Uh, media literacy, and you had said media literacy and information literacy. Information literacy is broader than that. There's lots of things. There's different discussions on on this that whether information literacy is a separate thing or that information literacy is more of an umbrella that encompasses things like media, data, visual literacy, things like that. And if you look into the research, you'll see you'll see different um, arguments for that. And that's that's a good thing because any robust information any robust field of research tends to start segmenting after a while and saying, you know, these things are related versus these things are separate and that kind of thing. But going back to media literacy, again, the idea is both to to read as well as as produce. Um, and, and by read, we're not just talking about reading literal texts. This is where it gets odd because with media, you are often literally reading. You are picking up a newspaper and reading. And that's true, but I can read, like literally read a newspaper article and not be necessarily literate in it. What we're talking about reading is we're talking about reading things like reading the signs, reading the, uh, the structures, reading what goes into something like that. When I am... It's hard to say without using the word read in two different ways. But when I'm watching a news story about a police issue and three of the people interviewed or a, a police, a community policing issue, and three of the people interviewed in the story are police officers and one is from the community, um, as a non-literate person, I might read that and take the information I'm getting at face value. As a literate person, I might look at that and think, why is the police department more heavily represented in this story than the community is? Or if I'm reading a story about, if I'm, if I'm viewing a story about uh, the Republican debates and the people who uh, respond to it are all Republican strategists, um, as a media literate person, I might say, why am I only getting the perspective of people that have a vested interest in this being viewed as, as a success? Or even not Republican strategists, or they're only uh, pro-Trump uh, contributors. Then I might ask, why am I only getting the perspective of people that come down on one particular side of this issue. And that's where we're starting to get in the realm of literacy. And what I mean when we say reading, there's probably a better word we could come up for it. But the idea that um, am I am I looking at what I'm seeing and am I asking what's included and also what's excluded? I think that's a big part. And how is it included? Those hows and whys, we can't be mind readers, but identifying uh, what goes structurally and thematically into something. Um, it doesn't make you magical. It doesn't give you powers, but it just lets you look at the components and say, why is this happening? Sure. What would you say is the the average person's role when it comes to media literacy? Yeah, this is something I touched on in my talk. I think there's a lot more than we realize. We like we like to talk about the media. We like to say, you know, trust the media, don't trust the media, the mainstream media, that kind of thing. 
And I mean, that's not completely irrelevant, but we are all culpable in the media unless you are not taking in any kind of, of online media, any mass media at all, you play a role by providing uh, that viewership data uh, via ratings, by picking up that newspaper. You are supporting this set of stories and not that set of stories. And definitely online, by clicking on something, by liking something, by sharing something, by commenting on something, you are providing engagement data that is informing the producers of that content that, yes, this, no, that. Uh, provide more of this, provide less of that. This kind of thing leads to audience involvement. This kind of thing gets people fired up, whether positively or negatively. Uh, you are playing a role. And when you comment, when you post, when you reshare, you're not something that's separate from the media. You are the media there. You are literally contributing to the media and providing information. Now, you might only have 10 followers, but you are still amplifying a signal to an audience, whether it's your original content or whether it's your sharing something that comes from the New York Times, from Fox News, from whatever. You are playing a role. And I think people often don't take that because we're we're fond of saying the media. And again, I'm not the same as CNN, and yet I am serving in a media role. And I am and I'm amplifying or diminishing signal depending on what I choose. And I and I play a role in what I put out there. I'm not free of responsibility for the media environment in which I to which I contribute. I suppose that's why they call it social media. Sure. Although sometimes it's more antisocial than that, but yes. <laughs> Very true. Um, so I would imagine there are probably some uh, severe consequences to having poor media literacy. Yeah, there are. And, and, and it's hard because and this is a challenge. So th this is a movement. I mean, this movement goes back to probably before the 90s, but really starting to call it that you saw in the, in the 1990s. And it's gotten traction a number of times for getting – more involvement at the state and federal level and, and making certain uh, competency requirements and standards and that kind of thing. And then as we've gotten more polarized, the idea um, has fallen off a bit because it can be treated as, as an indoctrination, as a teaching you the right way to think and that kind of thing. And there's a lot of things you can lob at that. As soon as we bring the word media, media into something now, it becomes a battlefield. And that's unfortunate. But you know, I, I, I can understand where we're at now, even if I don't care for it. But um, but the idea that, you know, the need for um, having literacy is, it's a shame that it feels polarized because it's not. We're not talking about, when we talk about bias, we tend to think we're talking about liberal and conservative, Republican, Democrat, and that, that's out there. But it's really literate in knowing like that where I get my information from is reliable and I can explain why. Not because it feels right, but because I can say they've shown their work. They've shown this came from there. There are no claims in this story that I'm sharing that cannot be verified. They can't be pointed to and say, yes, this comes from somewhere reputable and this is trustworthy. Or if an outlet makes a mistake that I can point to and say, and this is what they did next. Um, and that literacy is really important not in because it teaches us not to expect perfection, to recognize that any information source has its own biases, structures, prejudices, things like that, but to recognize when those are made um, in good faith and when and when those might play more fast and loose with our trust and our our um, recognition of of facts. Sure, which leads me directly into my next question. One of the big things that you talked about was misinformation and disinformation. For the uninitiated, can you kind of tell me the difference between the two? Sure. The real the real difference between misinformation and disinformation is one of intent, which is very hard to you know nail down unless somebody outright says I'm out to deceive. But in both cases, we're spreading false or misleading information. Misinformation is lacking intent. Misinformation is when I see a story about a shark swing up the highway after a hurricane, 
and and share it because, oh my God, did you see this? And I didn't do my job. I didn't check things out. But my goal is not to trick somebody. My goal is, man, what a story. And that's irresponsible. That's not good. I'm sharing false information. But I'm not out to deceive. Disinformation is when I make that picture of a shark swimming up the highway and then share it and say, look at this shark I saw. Isn't that amazing? And people say, oh, my goodness. And they share it too. They're contributing misinformation. I'm contributing disinformation because I'm trying to mislead. And it's important. But one of the things I talked about is that sometimes we focus so much on those active bad actors creating disinformation and lose the thread because that's bad. We don't want that. Absolutely. But it's focusing on, a, I guess I'll say a smaller group. It's focusing on the wrong thing because we can go out and catch that guy and try to make him stop doing it maybe, or maybe not. But meanwhile, we have multiple people sharing that image that aren't trying to harm in many cases that are sharing it because it feels right. And that's getting far more widespread than one guy, unless it's a person with a very powerful platform already, which makes it a lot harder for them in most cases to make up outright falsehoods. Not all cases, but most cases. Whereas if thousands of people are sharing that misinformation because they didn't bother to check if it was true, that's amplifying that signal way more. That's getting that, giving that, that false information a lot greater reach. Misinformation is a bigger problem. It's just not as exciting to think about because it's not some shadowy individual or group that's, that's pulling these strings and manipulating the world. It's your aunts and uncles and fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters that think they're doing the right thing. Right. Um, which makes it especially difficult, I think, to dis to discern whether it's misinformation because it is so widespread mm -hmm. from so many different people. Mm -hmm. who, who is who is the, the largest group affected by misinformation and disinformation? I mean, I, I don't know if I'd say, I could, I could say a, a specific group so much as the, the, the general public, it really affects us. Even if you search and you, you engage in good data or uh, information literacy practices and that kind of thing, you are affected by, well, I mean, I guess the question to ask is how many ways in which we're affected by it. We have the idea of, you know, getting bad information leading to a bad understanding of a given situation. And that's true. And that's a, that's a bad thing. That's that's the on its face thing. But we've also got the level of reinforcing uh, different bubbles of reality where we have the idea that, you know, we're sharing information that makes this candidate look bad because we don't want that guy to be president or that guy to be congressman or whatever. And so we live in a world, we start to live in a world where that person, everything they do is bad. And so if we see them doing something bad, we want to share that. And that makes it harder to talk to people who feel the opposite. And so there's a, there's a social issue there with, with not vetting things because then the not, the not checking things out becomes a habit. And then it becomes part of our group that we believe this without question. And we don't believe this unquestioningly. And anytime you get to that unquestioning part, that's what the problem is. And that's the larger issue. It's it's bad for the individual issue. It's bad for understanding the given hurricane, the given wildfire, the given election issue or whatever. It's worse for the overall environment of, of trust. The idea that, well, it's twofold, that I can trust this and I can't trust that. And it's also bad because the idea that it, it, it artificially adds alwayses and nevers to the equation. I'm a regular reader, reader of the Washington Post. I read it every day. I'm a big believer in it. Um, I never always, I just said never, but I don't always trust the Washington Post. If I read something that seems questionable, I will look and see where, did these, where are the sources for this story? 
Or is it an opinion piece rather than a news piece? Well, okay, then they're going to have more of a bias and that's to be expected. That's all right. It's I just don't – but I don't treat it as, as completely objective information. Or if I'm reading an article that feels like after a while that, you know, they're really getting a lot of the – the technology company's side and they're not getting much of the user's side here. That's a problem for me. The same as the example I gave about uh, about the community versus police in a, in a story where one side is is overrepresented. That doesn't mean always quote unquote both sides need to be given. Sometimes one side I can throw plat, flat earthing out there. And apologies for any flat earther listeners that we have, but you know Gosh, that, I hope we don't have Yeah, to. right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't need their side. <laughs> but but you know that's that's but I, and and that's that's actually a good example. I have to, I have to dig up a, a kind of kooky example to to say like, here's a case where we would write this off. But in most of the time, you know, if I'm reading the Washington Post, which I trust, it doesn't mean I trust them blindly. Like if I and if I see an article that feels like, you know, there's a lot of anonymous sources in this article, even though they're saying, well, this is a source close to the president. This is a source close to the president. After a while, it starts to itch because it feels like, right, but if nobody is going on the record with this, I realize it's sensitive on the one hand. And on the other hand, it weakens the credibility of that particular article. The publication as a whole, I still trust because they've done right countless times. And when they do screw up, they go on record about where they went wrong and they and they do their best to make amends. And what I've mentioned before, but what comes next is as important as what they do in the first place because a news organization that's in the business of getting news out there quickly is going to on occasion get it wrong. And I don't judge on the basis of do they – if they always get it wrong, that's one thing. But it, I don't go on the basis of have they never gotten it wrong. It's what do they do when they do get it wrong. And going back to the post, they follow up on that. And that has given me – a greater general sense of confidence for them. But I still don't always trust them because that's not – I don't think that's what they'd want. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, it, it's obvious that media literacy and, and being aware of misinformation and disinformation are important to everyone, right? Like this is a overall social problem that affects everybody. But as it pertains to service members and members of the federal government, are there uh, specific aspects of media literacy that you think are especially important for them? Oh, I think so. And I think I think being in the service and, you know, and I'm sure I'm going to, uh, you know, show my lack of literacy for the services here because I'm, I'm, I'm a civilian. And so there's things I may get wrong here. But broadly – my understanding, you're, you know, service members work in an environment where information operates not necessarily differently, but there are di- uh, there are layers of information and information access and information control that the general public does not ex- is not going to experience. And so, I would think that uh, service members are both better prepared in some ways and worse prepared in other ways for it because there is a chain of command. There's a way of you do this because, you know, this is this is the order you follow these directions, that kind of thing. And so there's certain kinds of trusts that are necessary that you're trained for in the service. And on the other hand, there's a recognition of quality. There's a recognition of what's reliable. There's a recognition that some things you're not supposed to know because of clearances and classified nature of documents and that kind of thing that I think people in the armed services are going to be better capable of understanding that how that hierarchy, how that um, that vetting works and that kind of thing. So I think there are challenges there in the sense where you know, there's more official information sources and an advantage is going to be, again, understanding that information hierarchy and understanding that something at a top level is there for a reason and being able to recognize gradations rather than just things are either good or terrible rather than, you know, the reality, which is that a lot of things are just okay. <laughs> in your um, in your conversation during the social media forum, you talked about several different ways that um, – 
purveyors of misinformation and disinformation appeal to uh, your your average consumer? Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yes, and, and, I, and I, I go back to I go back to Aristotle on this just because I like uh, Aristotle's uh, modes of appeal. And I realize once you start talking about Greeks, your your hair gets you know six inches longer, and you start wearing a toga and whatever. But Aristotle's arguments for the three major modes of persuasion, persuasive appeals, these haven't changed. Ethos, logos, and pathos, and I'll, I'll set aside the Greek now, but the idea being appealing either to who's saying the message, appealing to the logic and facts of the message, or appealing to the, the way the message makes you feel. And these you can see in a Coke ad right now or a car ad right now just by saying, you know, is there a famous person telling you that, man, these cars are great? Well, that's a logos appeal. That's an appeal to the person. Is there a set of facts and figures saying that, you know, this juice provides a higher percentage of the recommended daily allowances of vitamin C? That's a logos appeal. It's providing facts and figures. Is it saying if you vote for this guy, the world will be better? you'll feel better. If you buy this shirt, if you buy these shoes, you're just going to feel awesome. That's a pathos appeal. It's going to where you're at. They're not pointing to facts and figures about how the quantification of how awesome you'll feel. They're not saying that this famous runner person is, that's a technical term, is wearing these shoes. That's an ethos appeal. They're saying, man, you wear these shoes, you're going to be awesome. You're going to be the best. And that's a pathos appeal. And all those appeals play a role um, in any, in the persuasion we make. Um, and the example, the, the phrase that I gave that I, is, is one I'm a fan of, uh, it's not mine, it's Umberto Eco, but the idea that a sign is anything that can be used to lie. And the idea that the example I like is from Star Wars. They want to sneak into the Death Star, so they put on Stormtrooper outfits. And because Stormtroopers are allowed in the Death Star, then I can use those Stormtrooper costumes to sneak into the Death Star. By the same token, if ethos, pathos, and logos appeals are how we persuade, then persuade honestly, then I can also use them to persuade dishonestly. Once again, we're not saying don't trust anything. We're saying be aware that the routes to persuasion can be used against us. So read critically. Pay attention to the fact, and pathos in particular is the warning sign. My, my, my go-to phrase is if you want to believe something as the absolute best sign you can have that you need to check it out. It doesn't mean it's false. But as soon as we start wanting to believe something is true, our body looks for ways, our mind looks for ways to make it happen. Um, we stop thinking or at least stop thinking fully critically because this is how I want thing to be. I want this politician to be right. I want this root view of the world to be true. I want this view of this race, this sex, this ethnicity to be reality. And so once I want that, I stop thinking about whether the facts that I'm putting out there are as true. And that's our warning sign. And again, the example I gave of the shark, that when I see it, it's not that we want the sharks to be on our highways, but we want a story to be good. And a shark swimming up the highway after a hurricane is a heck of a story. Because man, that's crazy. Anything that makes you say, that would make your, your buddy from college say, man, that's crazy. That's a warning sign because that's the kind of thing where, you know, we want it to be crazy because that's a great story. And we might play a little faster and loose with the facts, whether it's sharing celebrity death that didn't happen or a politician flubs that might be exaggerated or video clips that might be a little cherry picked, uh, anything like that. You might love a picture that shows, you know, Joe Biden or Donald Trump looking stupid, but, you know, maybe it was a windy day that day. Maybe it's not what they actually went into the meeting looking like. So it's interesting as you were discussing that and, and here and during the social media forum, it occurred to me that, you know, those those methods of appeal aren't inherently evil, right? Mm -hmm. So both the good guys and bad guys are going to use those methods of appeal um, to reach out to, to their intended audience. Mm -hmm. um, I guess it really just comes down to the intent of the message sender. Um, are there 
ways that that you um, would tell people to determine whether something is misinformation or disinformation? Yeah, there's 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 so many, and there's no there's no one size fits all. So one one point that I tried to make in the talk uh, towards the end is developing your toolbox, having an idea of go to things. I gave the example. This is not a toolbox example, but it, it segues to it. That I gave the example of the Washington Post being a news source that I trust. And yet, you know, if I read an article that I'm unsure about or that seems questionable, I have certain things I'll check. I'll look and see, like, what are their sources? What kind of facts are they citing? Are they experts in that area? That kind of thing. With any kind of information, we should have go-tos depending on the kind of information. So claims that are being made, um, who's making the claim? Are they an expert in that area? The example I gave was that, you know, I, I'm a PhD, so I can say doctor in front of my name. But you don't want me giving you medical advice because I don't have that experience. So while it's true, I am a doctor. I'm not a doctor. And you'll see that often. You'll see people being presented as experts that have the right letters by their name. But they're not necessarily experts in that area. You'll see that a lot of time with institutes, uh, for example, like, you know, um, like uh, partisan institutes in Washington, like Cato would be an example, things like that. And sometimes you'll have – not just them, but like – and you'll have an example of somebody that's an expert from that. And they might be an expert in that area or they might just be training as more of a general expert, which is funny because expert is not a title you really – that exists. And yet sometimes you're like, well, they're an expert here. So they're an expert anywhere. Uh, the Dr. Oz campaign is a great example. He's a doctor. Well, yes, but not – you know, he's a heart surgeon as I recall. You know, that doesn't mean he's going to be able to tell you about your feet. That doesn't mean he knows anything about COVID um, any more than I know anything about COVID as a quote-unquote doctor. Um, and so being able to just look at like, where's the information coming from? Not just the publication as a whole, the macro level of like, which site does this come from? But what are the facts being provided from there? If your story is about, we'd said before, if your story is about um, the Republican debates and the only sources in the story are people that are very anti-Trump, then it's not a great story because that's not a story about the debates. That's a story about the anti-Trump reaction to the debates, which is a very different story. And if it's presented as the anti-Trump reaction to the debates, those are great sources. But it was presented as here's what the person on the street thought. And every person there hates Donald Trump. Uh, you know, <laughs> that's not really accurate. And so being able to look and, – and let me break away from this for a second because I understand that when you talk about media literacy, the problem and why it's useful to break it down is that as soon as you get to like the second or third thing to do, it can feel exhausting because, dear Lord, I'm going to sit down to this news article and I have to, well, let's check the about page. Let's check the sources. Let's check this. Who? I mean, I just want to know what happened. You can understand this is this is the pathos or the emotional side of thing again because it's that feeling of, look, man, I just want to know the news. And I, I feel that. It is difficult. And I want to stress that I don't. It's the first stages are the hardest. The repetition is how we get there. Developing that toolbox. I don't. And so one of the examples I give in, in the session is using a Google reverse image search to see uh, the provenance of an image. Where did this image that seems compelling come from? And, find, and we find out that this image actually came from 10 years ago and it's being presented as something that just happened. I don't reverse image search every image I see. What I do is I've been doing this for long enough that I've developed my sense of smell that when an image seems like, man, if I want to believe it, there's your gut check once again. If I want to believe, man, that image is compelling, I better check that image out. If I feel like, man, I really want to believe that, then I'll check it out and see, is this really from what it is? Um, does the newspaper provide or the publication provide enough information on this? But So it's not about – it can be a little daunting, but it's really about just having that toolbox. I don't check Snopes or PolitiFact or reverse image search or all those tools that I listed for everything I run across. That would be exhausting. You'd never get out the door. But 
the things that have that emotional pull on me, the things that feel like, wait a minute, um, and that's something you can develop. And once you've got that developed, then when you run across them in the wild, you go to this tool to check it out. You go to that tool to check it out. You don't drag your whole toolbox around with you everywhere, but you know where your tools are at. And hey, I need a hammer today. I need a screwdriver today. I can leave the wrenches at home. It isn't a run a wrench story. The metaphor is breaking down, but you get the idea. <laughs> the point is like, yeah, a little bit of work because yeah, you got to train yourself. But what's the payoff? The payoff is to not be constantly wrong. The payoff is to feel confident in the information that you're sharing and putting out in the world as, I'll say it again, a member of the media via social media. You are sharing information. I would hope you would want to be sharing information correctly, not just because it makes you feel good. Yeah. Um, since our uh, online existence has sort of increased and taken over the majority of what human beings do at this point, I mean, my iPhone tells me every day how much time I spend online, and every day it disturbs me. <laughs> um, would you say that the the uh, appearance of misinformation and disinformation has increased over time? And have you seen any um, specific times that it has uh, peaked? Okay. So I would say, first of all, I mean, it, it's the short answer is yes, it's increased. I mean, it has to have. But the thing I'm not sure of is whether it's a greater proportion of information. It's absolutely increased because there's more information as a whole because there's more channels available to us. The same way as the amount of information and probably disinformation increased with the advent of radio or television or with the internet, just making more channels available or allowing more people to access those channels in the case of social media on the internet, uh, yeah, that's putting more information out there. By nature, I would expect there'd be more social, there would be more disinformation because there's more information. Whether it's a higher proportion, I would lean towards probably. Um, and I would wager that a lot of that is, once again, more misinformation than disinformation. People believing things half-cocked. Uh, people believing things so they want to believe them. People sharing because, in some cases, wanting to create the world that they wish it, as it as they wish it was rather than as perhaps it actually is. So I would wager, yes, I couldn't quote you a number for that, but there's definitely more disinformation because there's more information. And this is another reason why it's daunting because we are confronted by so much that we shut down. Um, there's a reason why writing a headline is so important. It's always been important, but now in particular, because that headline, for most of the information I take in away, that headline or that social media post is going to be the only bit of it I see. Not because I'm apathetic, I teach journalism, but because it's just a wash of information coming across my feed every day. I need selectors to get there. And I need that information, those headlines and posts that I see to provide enough information that I can scan past them, which doesn't sound great for a news outlet. But that's why I follow that news outlet, because they write a good, they write headlines that I can trust in most cases. And then if I need to check that out, you know, then I'll click into it. Uh, and it probably sounds like I'm just advocating, just look at the headline and moved on. But the point is like I'm scrolling through and those headlines give me an idea of what I need to know about my world today. And then the things I need more depth in, those are the things I follow through on. It's why good writing at that micro level, just that headline, just that that header, that post, whatever is so critical right now because we're confronted with so much information. And if we assume, I hope this isn't naive, if we so assume that most people want to be on the side of the angels, that most people want to be doing things right. Even they're sharing misinformation. A lot of people are doing it because they think they're advocating the right cause. The road, you know, but the road to hell is paved with good intentions. But if we accept that intent at the very least, then there's a place we can reach people on that. It's like, do you want to be right or do you want to feel good? And, you know, we do want to feel good. Let's be let's be honest about that. But I'm still of the mind that like most people want to 
not necessarily being right, but want to get it right. And that's maybe that's the finer hair to split, which is that do you want to be right or do you want to get it right? Because being right is kind of a feeling. Getting it right is something I can point to and say, yeah, and this is what I did to get there. Um, sometimes even getting a story wrong can involve getting it right in the sense that I did everything right and it turned out the person talking to me was lying. Um, but I did everything I could possibly have done. I can confidently say, even though I have to retract the story, make a correction, whatever, that I don't regret anything I did because I was, I, I followed the path I should. That's cold comfort to somebody that's, you know, that believed the, the incorrect story. But I know, and as a former reporter, there have been stories that came out of mine that were wrong as a young reporter due to making errors. And there's stories that came out wrong because I got misinformed by someone. And in those stories, I can point to and say, I did everything I needed to do, but life intervened. And so what did I do next? I corrected it. I followed up. I made good on what went wrong. And that what it's hard when we're things are just scanning past us, but that what comes next is really, really important to deal with that wash of information. Going back to the original question, it's not necessarily that there's more disinformation, it's that there's just more information. People, I think, can be forgiven for being overwhelmed. So providing the tools with which people can get to the good information and understand what's good, that's where we can serve. Uh, just a few minutes ago, you mentioned briefly Snopes and PolitiFact. Mm -hmm. Can you talk more about the resources that are available to people to determine whether or not something's misinformation? Yes. Yeah, those, those, are, those are two big ones that I like a lot. PolitiFact is a fact-checking. There's, there's tons of them. And, you know, I always list these out, but there's, there's PolitiFact, there's the Washington Post fact checker is excellent. Uh, there's, um, what you call, there's uh, lots that we use. There's um, factcheck.org. Um, Snopes is not a news-oriented fact-checking site. They do that. So Snopes, and, you know, Snopes himself was a notorious troll online that basically turned white hat and runs this site. And it's, it's, he's excellent. He's spoken at conferences I've been to. And I've had friends tell me, well, it's Snopes. You can't trust that. They're, they're, they're biased. Usually you'll hear they're liberally biased. And what I always point to is that, that phrase again, that they show their work. And I'm very confident that Snopes is biased towards fact. And I am confident of that, not because they align with my opinion. I've read checks on Snopes for things that I really, really want to be true. And they're not. And I grip my teeth and there's that itchy finger that still wants to click the share button. And I just said, nope, you know that's not true. You know you can't get away with that. Like, well, it might as well be true. Um, and that's why I like them because they've told me truths that I don't like. And But it's not just what they tell me. This is the same as the Washington Post thing. This is the same as the not. We don't blindly trust anything. Uh, that doesn't mean you don't trust anything. That blindly is critical. When I read a Snopes article, when I read a good a PolitiFact article, when I read a good fact-checking site article, I look and see where do they get their information. If I'm in West Virginia, our senator is Joe Manchin. If I'm, they're checking a claim um, about that Joe Manchin made. The first thing I want to see is, did they reach out to Joe Manchin? And I know for a fact they did because I teach the class that pairs with PolitiFact. And it's not going to get published if they didn't reach out to Joe Manchin, even if they say, no comment. We've given them the opportunity to respond to our check on a claim that he made. Um, we've reached out to the people that are involved. We've reached out to people that are not involved, that are experts at WVU in industry, depending on what claim he's making about coal or natural resources or whatever it is he's making a claim about. We've checked it out. And so when we say that claim is true or mostly true or false or, well, Manchin's never had a pants on fire, um, but like that kind of thing, we can confidently say that. And I can confidently read that because they show their work, because they say where the information came from. It's not just saying, well, it's false because we know it's false. It's false because all politicians are liars. They're showing me where it came from. And sometimes I will feel displeased because something I want to be true isn't. But 
with practice and repetition, I'm I'm confidently at the point where, you know, I can I can recognize that something being true is far more important than whether I want it to be true. And that's something that we definitely talk about in our courses here. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, our motto at the schoolhouse is strength through truth. So we're, we're, we're constantly worried about that. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned uh, earlier and during your talk that we are all members of the media at this point. With that said, do you still think that journalists and broadcasters still have a particular responsibility to avoid preventing misinformation and oh, disinformation? Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I try, I, I lead with that line cause I want to make sure everybody knows they're on board. I, I do not like the, the media, you know, when I want to recognize that, but it's absolutely a different realm and, you know, and it's a challenge because I think for a lot of, of, of journalists, you know, they're still making that transition to understanding that the audience plays a role as well, rather than just, it being one-way communication that I put the news out there and you take it in. And the idea of it being a dialogue is something that there's a challenge to. It doesn't mean that they're on equal weight, but there's absolutely a difference um, that, you know, that, that there's a different responsibility because they have a higher platform. The same as if I'm an Instagram influencer, I'm not, um, you know, I do have a different obligation. Uh, United States are standard for public figures with Sullivan and those legal rulings as well as just how we treat them. They exist for a reason. The idea that you are a public figure, you have fewer protections against defamation, that sort of thing, because you have greater power. They didn't just decide we're going to give these people fewer rights. We decided you have less protections here because you have greater power here. And that idea of platform pertains to mass media organizations as well. CNN has a greater platform. I'm responsible for getting things right. They're by by understanding they are far, they are more responsible for it because they have such a greater platform they have greater reach um the new york times has greater reach they have greater audience they have greater responsibility doesn't mean i don't have a responsibility to get it right to the handful of people that are listening to me but they have a far more significant perhaps greater isn't the right word but a more significant responsibility to get it right to that audience and a, and a greater challenge too and so, yeah, they are definitely playing in a different league. They're still playing the same game, but they got way more butts in the seats. And, yeah, the idea is so, yeah, and this is why the best news organizations have those ethical codes of conduct, have those standards, have those procedures, not just, oh, we'll get it right, have those procedures where when they get it wrong, they can say, this is what we do next. I know I keep coming back to that because this is what they do next is important. It's too absolute to say people should just get everything right the first time. It's not possible. Um, news changes, sources, best practices can still yield bad results. And I'm just, I know that's true in the military as well. You can follow everything to the letter and things can still go haywire. Um, and so recognizing that rather than just saying, well, we'll just get it right the first time and having procedures built in for that, it's good for everybody, but particularly mass media organizations because all eyes are on them, making sure that they know what to do when the candidates don't listen to the bell during the debate when um, the source, the absolutely reliable source turns out to have been lying because he's retiring, um, things like that. What do you do? Do you sweep it under the rug or do you make good and say we screwed up (coughs) or we were misled um, and here's what you need to know and here's what we're going to do to make right on that? Um, It's one reason why the role of public editors, which you don't see as often anymore, um, is such a tragic, I guess we can say loss yet, but there are a lot more common public editors and ombudsmen if we're not if, if listeners aren't familiar, just the idea of somebody in-house that's responsible for critiquing the organization's own work in a public sense. And a public editor is a little bit different because they usually respond to individual audience uh, questions like Margaret Sullivan was for some time, or an ombudsman being like the in-house lawyer that looks at 
how wrong or right were we in these complicated decisions that we made. And that really takes the own organization to task. And it's been treated, unfortunately, as something, oh, we don't need that anymore. When I would argue it's probably more important than ever to have that kind of standard and saying like, yeah, we're holding ourselves accountable. It's We should be harder on ourselves than the audience is. Because if we're making ourselves get it right in-house, it's less likely to go wrong once it leaves our door and we have no control over it. For sure. Um, you know, I'm consistently reminded um, while talking to you and while talking to other people that the the wise words of Peter Parker always applied situations like this, you know, with great power comes Absolutely. great responsibility. There's a reason why Peter Parker is my favorite or why Spider-Man is my favorite uh, superhero. There's also a reason why so many, just a bird walk quickly on that, why so many comic book characters were journalists back then. Because there's an idea, you know, it seems quaint now, but there's an idea that advocating for the people with little hope of praise or thanks and literally having to be anonymous in the case of superheroes, you know, there's a reason why those two uh, professions dovetail so well with, with Spider-Man and with, and with Superman. Because I can't show you who I really am because it's not about me. It's about how, how do I serve. And that idea of service is so important to journalism. And this isn't something you can hold the individual too, but I would hope that as we develop media literacy, the individual that put things out here, we realize that realm of responsibility and culpability and that just by being able to talk to those 10 people in my feed or whatever, um, that I have responsibility to them. They've decided to listen to me. I owe it to them. Never mind, you know, I can argue I owe it to America. I owe it to constitutional values. Or I owe it to a lot more, but I also owe it to those 10 people that have decided to listen to me for five minutes. Like get it right. Absolutely. Um, could you share with us a, a time when misinformation or disinformation affected you personally and how did that turn out? Yeah. I mean, um, just, um, last week. So my mom is, uh, she's a, uh, administrative assistant at, at the high school where I went to in Cory, Pennsylvania. And, um, she every now and then messages me. We, we live in a, <laughs> we live in an area that can, play a little fast and loose with facts. And, you know, I'll have my friends in my high school feed that will share things that they swear are true. And, and I've kind of gotten to the point where I don't correct that anymore because it's not the, I'll throw up my hands and say, oh, it doesn't matter. It's that I've found that there's ways to approach things. And by saying you're wrong about that is a good way to have somebody stop listening to you. And so by identifying uh, what I found to be far more successful are things like, you know, where'd you get that information from? Why do you believe that? That kind of thing. And it's engaging in more of a dialogue and it's not perfect, but it does help. And so to get to your question, uh, my mom periodically will send me questions from people that, or questions about things that people with her insist to be true. Uh, the most recent one, and this is funny because this is a couple years old now, there, there was a story that made the rounds in 2021 that um, it's a great example of wanting to believe something to be true for reasons um, of, of, people insisting that kids in their kids' school are being allowed to use litter boxes in the bathroom. And the claim that comes through every time, because you'd say that this isn't true, and the claim that will come through every time is, no, 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 my kids said they saw it, which I don't know all children, but I want to say, have you met your own child? Do you believe everything your kid tells you? But it's, or, or another parent told me this. And my mom wrote, she said, I know this is true. She's, she's learned. She said, I know this isn't true, but can you show me, which I appreciate, said, can you show me, you know, where it's been covered, this isn't true. And I said, and I provide her some examples, but I also said, you know, what's preposterous there? And it just shows how far the wanting to believe something is true. It's not that people want to believe that there's, there's kids using cats or kids using litter boxes. It's that people want to believe that everything's terrible. 
there's people that want to believe that, isn't this preposterous? And then they work backwards from there to find something to believe. And it's amazing that people in a public school system would believe that an administrative decision to allow litter boxes and bathrooms could be made in a public school and the principal would not make a statement about that because this is, this is public. It would have to be on public record. It would have to be. It's not a private school. On its face, it's ridiculous. And, you know, it is not true. Flat out, not true. And yet it keeps coming back. It's, this is two years now that it's come up with. And so – and it's not a situation I can happily report a resolution to. But I am glad that – I'm fortunate that my mother has never been in this camp. Maybe she's just decided she didn't want to have to deal with me being annoying. But my mom has always, you know, been pretty level-headed about stuff and willing to question. But what I appreciate is that when this came up, because I know she probably felt that tug because she's not different from her friends in many ways, but she felt that tug of like, well, what if it is true? Wouldn't that be something? She watches a lot of Today Show, you know, where you get those like moral panic stories. And I appreciate that she was willing to ask, in this case, me, but that she was willing to say, huh, that certainly seemed compelling. Let's check it out. And just that instinct really, really is valuable to me. Whether or not her friends are convinced, it's meaningful to me that somebody that I care about was willing to just check it out with me or with somebody else to say, let's just see if that thing that seems amazing is actually true. And that that means a lot. We have talked about um, so many things during this conversation. Um, is there any specific tips or advice that you haven't shared yet that you think our listeners would find particularly useful? I mean, you know, I'll go back to my I'll go back to my my favorite phrase, which is that if you want something to be true, check it out. It's just it's just always, always. And I think to broaden that, identify as many ways as possible of checking things out. And I want to stress not so that you're doing these with every story. That's impossible. You would be you'd never get out the door. But have go-to strategies because this is where we habituate. The same as in your life, you have so many go-to strategies. Like you have the pop machine that only works if you smack it on the side. Well, after the fifth or sixth time, you don't think about it. You just smack it on the side. It's just you're habituated to that now. And that habituating to good media habits, it takes a little bit. The same as like learning to wake up early in the morning or go for a run every day. Yeah, it's hard at first. Pick something little. Uh, find an area where you've gotten fooled in the past or maybe something that just irritates you. And just – habituate yourself, you'll find that it becomes the norm because you're not going to have to check every story. But once you're habituated, like when I'm not sure, I just click the art, art, the author's name and it turns out that author doesn't exist. Or I click on the About Us page and it turns out there's no information there. Or I just, I'm on, I'm on Twitter X and, and I just click on the profile and it turns out that was account was just created a week before. So it's probably not a legitimate thing. And just, but in all cases, developing those micro habits that you're not using every time, but you're developing those habits that then when I'm curious, I check. And then you're going to feel so much better because you don't have that, just like in any environment in your life, you don't have that what do I do now feeling. You know what to do. And you can act. It's And, and you can do something. And you're taking that power back. Of It's not just there's all this information and I'm just adrift in it. I have strategies for checking things out. And that gets to that idea of like I'm not getting fooled. I can feel confident when I share something, which is a good feeling because I know that if anything that I felt questionable about, I checked out. And the worst part is sometimes it means having to let things go that you really want to believe. But that's the other side of it. But if you're able to let go of the things you want to believe because they don't check out, that's as good a thing as I could ask for anybody to get to. Just be willing to let go of the stuff you desperately want to believe, even if that shark in the highway looks really, really awesome. <laughs> Dr. Britton, thank you so much for joining us. You know, I, I, I think that this topic is incredibly useful for our students, for our graduates, uh, for anyone who listens to the program. Um, and 
it's not a topic that's covered enough because it's a it's something that we deal with every single day. You know, you may you may not off you may not read a newspaper every day or, or watch a, a TV news report, but everyone is on social media every single day, and there's um, so many aspects of the things that we look at that we need to question more. Um, and I think that you re- did a really great job of explaining why that is during the course of this conversation. And I really appreciate that. So again, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you for having me on.